number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. And one of the great themes of this particular radio show has always been to question a lot of conspiracy theories that come out there that say we never landed on the moon or the Kennedy assassination was the work of the CIA or maybe it was the work of the Cuban government or maybe it was the work of the mafia, some conspiracy. Uh, they would have found it by now, by the way, if any of that were true. And that is often the case. However, uh, there is one conspiracy that is in the news right now because of a terrific best-selling book. It is uh, one of the top sellers of recent years, actually. And it's by someone who's had previous number one bestsellers named Brad Meltzer. He has written books uh, called The First Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill George Washington, the Lincoln Conspiracy, and yes, it was a conspiracy, the secret plot to kill America's 16th president, and they eventually succeeded in a conspiracy to kill President Lincoln. This one is the biggest of them all, and it's the most fascinating of them all because even people who know history, and I do, uh, didn't know about this story. It's called The Nazi Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. Uh, Brad Meltzer, congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. Very kind of you. Well, let me let me ask you a question right away, because yesterday we had this news about another real-life conspiracy, which is, seems to be well-documented uh, for for a group of neo-Nazis to blow up all the power stations in Baltimore and basically destroy the city and begin a race war in Baltimore, Maryland. Why is it all these years after Hitler's death, after the destruction and, and horror that was brought about by the Nazi regime, why are we still talking about Nazi conspiracies? It's a really good question. You know, when uh, when we sit down and write these books, it's very titillating for me to say we found a secret plot to kill George Washington. We found one to kill Abraham Lincoln. Here's one for Winston Churchill and FDR and Stalin. But what Josh mentioned and I, my co-author, always do at the start is we say, why are we telling this story? Why now? And the answer was your question, which is why are we still fighting Nazis in 2023? When you see here a Nazi plot in Baltimore, you see in Charlottesville, you know, that there are Nazis marching around a few years back. We all wring our hands and we say, I can't believe this is happening here in America. This can't be happening here. It seems like something that should happen abroad or, or in Europe back in the 40s. And when we were researching this book, we found a Nazi rally that took place in Madison Square Garden. And I've seen films 20, of that. It's an unbelievable, I, I encourage people, we, we put a picture in the Nazi conspiracy in the book because we wanted people to physically see it. It's 20,000 people cheering with big giant banners of George Washington surrounded by swastikas. And the very first speaker at the rally says, if George Washington were alive today, he'd be friends with Adolf Hitler. So why are we fighting Nazis in 2023? Because they never left. In Baltimore... It's Baltimore uh, white supremacists who try to kill Abraham Lincoln at the start of his presidency. And if, if history has proven anything recently, it's that the Civil War never ended and World War II sadly never ended. We're, you know, it's not like when you win the war, 
all the bad guys just go, I'm going to switch sides and be a good guy now. They're here, and they've been here for years. And to me, it's why we tell these stories is you got to use your voice and speak up. The American dream, to me, is not about making money. It's about when you see someone being bullied, when you see someone being singled out, you use your voice and you say, enough, enough already. Brad Meltzer, who is the co-author together with Josh Mensch of uh, The Nazi Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. Now, you have made the point, and it's one of those things that uh, no one can deny. Uh, Stalin and Churchill hated each other. They did not get along. They had a fraught relationship. Uh, What was the point of... Hitler's plot, and your your book shows, and it's very well documented, that Hitler personally was in on this plot. What was the point of trying to knock off both Stalin and uh, Churchill? And FDR. Uh, yeah. It's all three of them. It's the big three. And let's just paint the picture of where we are at this moment in the war. It's 1943. It's the moment where Joseph Stalin wants us to invade continental Europe. He's getting decimated by the Nazi invasion in the Soviet Union. We're sending munitions. We're sending weapons. But he wants us to invade, basically to do what the invasion of Normandy eventually brings. And FDR realizes this is the moment where the big three, we have to get together, look each other in the eye, plan troop movements, plan morale, plan supplies, figure it all out. And as you said, he's in the middle because Churchill and Stalin hate each other. But what... Adolf Hitler realizes is he's got he's got the greatest thing, and when he finds out that the big three are meeting in one place, all these three leaders, he, it's the greatest thing anyone gets in a fight, which is an opportunity. So here comes FDR, and he comes to Tehran, Iran. That's where the meeting takes place, and his motorcade is there. Everyone's there because they want to see the motorcade. The presidents come across the world, and they're all waving at the motorcade. Presidents waving back, but what no one realizes, and this is all true is that that's not FDR in the motorcade. It's a Secret Service decoy. The real Franklin Delano Roosevelt is actually across the city, ducked down and hiding in the back of a beat-up sedan. And they ha- he's hiding because they're worried there's a Nazi assassin who's about to murder him. And I just ruined Chapter 1 of the Nazi conspiracy, but that's <laughs> Chapter 1 for you. Well, there you go. Uh, do we know if they used this decoy uh, impersonating FDR before? That's uh, a really good question. Um, it, it, you know, that has been used for a long time among the Secret Service, so I wouldn't be shocked if it is before. I don't know exactly where or when. Um, and something that's even used today, you'll see that the president sometimes goes, you know, there's a couple beasts, what they call the car that he travels in. There's more than one. And they don't always put him in the fourth car in the motorcade because then everyone would know which one he's in. So even today we use that trick. The thing that's amazing to me is, You know, we forget that assassination at that point in time was a real useful weapon and was used by our side as well as theirs. So when Admiral Yamamoto, who was the uh, Japanese architect of Pearl Harbor, the United States found out that they knew what plane he was going to be in. They knew his flight pattern. They knew where he was going to be. And they said to FDR, what do you want to do? You want to shoot him out of the sky? And FDR famously said, get Yamamoto. And we did. We assassinated him. And we've all heard the stories of Adolf Hitler, where whether he was going to be bombed on a train or attacked in the Alps, um, assassination was a really potent weapon 
in the arsenal of anyone in World War II. In fact, there was a moment where Winston Churchill, they thought, was on a commercial flight. The Nazis shot it out of the sky, killed everyone on board. It wound up just being someone who resembled Winston Churchill. So the idea of the big three coming together and being in one place at one time was a tantalizing target to the Nazis at the time. Uh, And also FDR had come within, most people estimate, three to five inches of uh, dying at the hands of an assassin in 1933, just before he was inaugurated as president in Miami. And uh, I I write about this in my book, uh, uh, God's Hand on America, because when people believed that he had been miraculously delivered from uh, this wild, crazy anarchist, Sangara, who was shooting at the direction of the president, Zangar actually killed the mayor of Chicago who was there, Tony Chermak. But uh, so Roosevelt would have been very aware. Uh, his, his cousin Theodore, who he greatly admired, had also taken a bullet in the chest from a would-be assassin. He delivered a speech anyway. Uh, Brad Meltzer delivering with a, a new bestseller, The Nazi Conspiracy. More about this story and why it's highly relevant to America today. Coming up with Brad Meltzer. The Michael Medved Show. Just uh, talking a little bit to Brad Meltzer, the co-author of the number one bestseller, according to a number of Amazon lists right now. It's a book called The Nazi Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. And this this was not a, a plot that just uh, bubbled up spontaneously from uh, would-be thugs. It was a plot that was coordinated at the highest levels of the Nazi government. Uh, explain uh, what was Hitler's idea, personal idea about this plot and um, about the way to handle it. Yeah, you know, Adolf Hitler um, it makes a lot of miscalculations in World War II, as you know, and you, you are a, a lover of history as I am, my friend. And the one thing that uh, he miscalculates, of course, he thinks that the Russians will give up fighting, that the Soviets will give up early, and, the, and they'll lay down their guns. And he's, of course, wrong on that. He, he thinks that the United States, that if he just bullies himself over us, that we will give up early, too. And that's a huge miscalculation because, of course, it just lights a fire under us. It's the reason we're fighting Nazis. No one wants to fight the Nazis. Um, we declare war against the Japanese for Pearl Harbor, but no one wants to fight the Nazis. But Hitler stupidly declares war on us. And one of the things he does as he comes after us is he starts finding people to do the job. And as a Nazi, you know, we've all heard of Adolf Hitler and FDR and Winston Churchill, but there's so many people in this book that you've never heard of. There's a guy named Otto Skorzeny. He's a Nazi, a special forces guy for Adolf Hitler who gets a call to come to Hitler's private bunker, uh, uh, private headquarters at the Wolf's Lair. And what Hitler's doing is he's bringing together all of his top special forces guys because he wants to test them. He lines them up in a big room shoulder to shoulder. And he quizzes them with one question. He says, what do you think of Italy? And all of them immediately start giving these you know, answers of, oh, Italy's on our side and we'll fight with them to the death. But one voice in that room, Otto Skorzeny, this one Nazi, shouts above everybody else, 
I am from Austria, my Fuhrer. And it's a gamble because he knows, of course, Adolf Hitler is from Austria. He also knows that a true Austrian forever resents Italy because back in the First World War, Italy took a key piece of Austria and never gave it back. And in that moment, Adolf Hitler turns to this Nazi, Otto Skorzeny, and he's like, you're my guy. You're my guy. And he sends Otto on a, on a secret mission. I won't ruin this part of the book because you've got to read it, but <laughs> he sends him on a secret mission that's so crazy that my co-author, Josh Mensch, and I, we said to the editor, we need to put a photograph of this moment in the book because if we don't, if people don't see it with their own eyes, they won't believe it really happened. And you'll see this photograph. You'll see the secret mission. It's the wildest Nazi story you've never heard in your life. And uh, Skorzeny, it sounds, sounds like he might have been Hungarian, that part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. You know, I don't know. I know he's from Austria. I don't know if he's Hungarian or not, but he, is, uh, he, knows, the, he knows the Austrian psyche well enough that he knows what Adolf Hitler really hates. And that is a key opportunity for him. Okay, so who gets the, the credit? We didn't have the CIA yet. It hadn't even been invented. Uh, but uh, who was working with Roosevelt, for instance, to keep him safe at, at Tehran, to use this idea of having a Roosevelt lookalike, a body double, uh, to ride around and to, uh, to get the, the agents who would actually come? And, and one of the things that's amazing about your book is this wasn't three or four or five agents. How, how many Nazis did they place in Tehran in order to bring off this triple assassination? Yeah, so according to the NKVD, who was a Soviet intelligence at the time, there were 30-something Nazis, paratroopers that landed. They caught all of them, interrogated all of them, except for six that were still on the loose. So those are the six we knew about. But to answer your question, the person who was in charge of the Secret Service at the time, you know, today, if the president goes to a city, you have a group of Secret Service guys who will go in the hotel room, they'll wheel in a bulletproof piece of glass, put it in front of the windows so no one can shoot through the windows. Another team will do advance work weeks before he gets there. Another team will test his food. Another team, there's so many teams you wouldn't believe. Back then, in 1943, there was a guy named Mike Riley. And there were obviously a couple others, but Mike Riley was in charge of White House security. He was promoted the day after Pearl Harbor. And he was the guy who used to physically lift up Roosevelt in his arms, cradle him like a baby, because he was one of the few who could actually lift him. And it's Mike Riley who looks at the NKVD, hears their, their, all their evidence, knows what the Nazis have tried before, knows that there have Nazis that have been captured in Tehran actually months before that in a similar M.O., and he's the one who assesses the threat and says, boss, we got to move you. He's the one who does, you know, plans the decoy. And uh, Mike Riley, to his dying day, never changes his story. FDR believes that story. Winston Churchill believes that story. And again, if, if, if someone like Mike Riley is not there, history takes a turn that none of us could possibly predict. And again, because right now the the war in 1943, the level of daily casualties in in Russia, you even even wonder that Stalin, uh, did he have some reluctance to go to Tehran to um, meet with Churchill and Roosevelt? You know what? The only reason it was in Tehran was because of Stalin. Uh, Churchill and, and Roosevelt said, listen, why don't we measure equidistant from all three of us? We'll meet there, so it's mutual ground. No, Stalin said. 
I said, how about Alaska? It's close to you. No. <laughs> he wanted Tehran because he had security there. He had an embassy there, and he thought the secrecy was better there. Um, but like you said, the devastation that the Russians were fighting there was staggering. They lost in, in Leningrad alone in one year. They lost 900,000 people, the largest loss of life in a major city in history. Um, and I don't think, as I was researching the book, I, I was blown away by the level of devastation that the Nazis were. You know, we all know stories of World War II, but we tend to tell the highlight reel. The level of devastation, you know, we lost about 400,000 people in the United States. The British lost about 450,000. The Soviet Union buried 24 million people. It's a staggering number. So Stalin did want to have the meeting. He's the one. It was it was Churchill who was kind of they were each at different points were fighting on whether to do it and whether they can get all three of them together at once. The reason it happened is because FDR had belief in one thing, his own ability to charm everybody. He charmed Stalin. He charmed Churchill. He's the one who brought them all together. He was the right person in that moment for the right time. And the uh, indispensable man at that moment in history. Uh, uh, Brad, I, I, uh, I can't wait. I know that you've done some TV work about uh, some of your past uh, books. Is there uh, likely to be a big feature film? Uh, maybe uh, and talk to Steven Spielberg about it? Uh, you know, I'm just happy that people are enjoying the book and they're sharing it with the people that they love and the history lovers in their life. I love the people that downloading the audiobook and listening to it on the way to work. But that doesn't stop my wife from picking out what she's wearing to the Oscars. <laughs> well, that's terrific. It's, again, because you have a, such a great cast of characters, it would be great to figure out who you want to cast um, as Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin, above all, who hasn't gotten nearly the attention for his prodigious killing uh, that, to some extent, you could say helped to save the world, not that he wanted to. Uh, Brad Meltzer, the book, The Nazi Conspiracy. Fascinating, entertaining, and important. We will be right back on The Med Dead Show. show, uh, all kinds of discussions going on about uh, the uh, <laughs> the backwash of the balloon. Uh, the um, Steve Daines, uh, who this is clip number four, who is a uh, senator from Montana. He is actually the head of the Senate uh, Republican Campaign Committee. Uh, he's the one who was in charge of the Republican effort to take over the Senate. And all it takes is winning uh, two seats and the Republicans have got the Senate. There's one issue today and it's it's kind of big news if you're inside politics and you care about this stuff deeply, as I do. Um, Senator Kirsten Gillenbrand is the not tremendously popular or effective uh, senator from uh, New York, along with Senator Chuck Schumer. And remember, she ran a brief presidential campaign, and it was embarrassing. 
And she is generally considered one of the most vulnerable senators there if they have the right candidate. And it looks like the right candidate is ready to step in. His name is Lee Zeldin. He came within five points of upsetting the governor of New York. Now, if he runs for Senate against Kirsten Gillenbrand, and he said he might, then that's a seat that's up for grabs. In any event, Steve Daines appeared on Fox News, and he was uh, uh, talking uh, about the spy balloon over Montana. Moon over Montana, is that a song? It will be a song. Uh, the balloon over Montana. And uh, he obviously, as a Montanan, representing Montana in the U.S. Senate, he didn't like the idea that uh, Joe Biden had been so hesitant to shoot down that uh, ungainly Chinese craft. Uh, here's uh, Senator Daines, clip four. I'm a fifth-generation Montanan, spent a lot of time canvassing the state. There are plenty of places we could have taken that balloon down. There's a seven-mile debris. The, 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 the biggest risk would have been hitting a cow, a prairie dog, or an antelope. So you don't buy this at all? <laughs> no, no, this is called Big Sky Country. They had a chance to take the shot. In fact, they needed to take that shot when it first crossed into U.S. airspace area in Montana. Remember, it's hovering over our ICBMs. We're very proud of that mission in Montana. In fact, one of the slogans up there is scaring the hell out of America's enemies since 1962. The Chinese weren't afraid. Those ICBMs are weapons of mass destruction. Those are the most powerful weapons known to mankind. We have those in Montana, and as Ronald Reagan said, that's about peace through strength. The Chinese put that balloon right over the top of them. Okay, and uh, that balloon isn't flying anywhere soon. They actually have photographs now of the Navy SEALs picking up some of the tatters of the blown up and very much deflated balloon and picking up some of the payload, which is supposed to be the equivalent of two extra-large buses. Uh, Steve Daines has another problem, uh, and, and this is completely laughable if it weren't so serious. Uh, headline, Senator Steve Daines suspended from Twitter over a profile picture of him hunting with his wife. Uh, Republicans slam insane decision and demand its reversal. Well, in this case, the Republicans are right. Why was his photo of him hunting with his wife removed? I mean, if there are other governors in the history of American politics who might have gone hunting with some other lovely lady. And maybe that creates a little bit of controversy, at least in the past it would have. But uh, Steve Daines was, was Mrs. Daines, who apparently is a very avid hunter and a good shot and knows how to handle firearms. The uh, photo that he used, which was his profile photo, showed him and his wife Cindy posing with a freshly killed and slightly bloodied antelope. Okay. I, I I don't know if you do. You, do people eat antelope meat? Is that is that a thing? Maybe it is in Montana. In any event, Dane's account is quote temporarily unavailable because it violates the Twitter media policy, according to a disclaimer on his page. Now, what is the Twitter media policy that? And this is by the way, this is not the old Twitter. This is the Twitter under Elon Musk, right? The uh, the idea that this uh, violates the 
Twitter media policy. I, I mean, honest to goodness, it claims the Montana lawmaker violated the sensitive media policy because it contained graphic or adult content. Now, if you hear about a politician who's putting up a profile picture of him and his wife um, and and it says it contained graphic content, don't you have the idea of something else potentially other than uh, a hunting photo? No, this is the question I have been praying for. <laughs> well, again, uh, I do think it is, it is likely that uh, uh, Twitter is going to uh, reconsider. And the uh, the idea that whether or not this is the only spy balloon um, that was a question that was avoided somewhat skillfully by Corinne Jean Pierre this morning. This is clip eight. This is the first Chinese balloon that the U.S. identified flying over U.S. airspace under this administration. Um, so what I can say is that. Um, we have talked about uh, the China's and uh, China's balloon program. Uh, we have um, uh, generally on this uh, the Chinese surveillance balloons program uh, has been around for some time. We even uh, we even briefed Congress this past August. Uh, so I don't have any specific on any other balloon during this uh, during uh, during this president's administration. But there has been a program that has been in effect. We have kept Congress uh, abreast on that. Uh, so, but that, I don't have anything more to to. to say or to share um, she doesn't have anything but we have this Elon Musk has taken action this just a breaking news from Fox News Elon Musk weighed in after complaints swirled over the lock on Montana Senator Steve Daines Twitter account today uh, Musk told a Republican user who called out the suspension that the problem is being resolved this is being fixed and I alone can fix it uh, responding to Travis County, Texas GOP Chair Matt McCowiak, who shared a report from The Hill discussing the lock with a caption, U.S. Senator suspended from Twitter due to cover photos show, uh, showing his wife and him hunting. This is insane. Policy against showing blood in profile pic is being amended to clearly showing blood without clicking on the profile click pic. The intent is to avoid people being forced to see gruesome profile pics, Musk explained. Um, this, <laughs> this controversy uh, will, will probably be gone when the State of the Union is, uh, by the time the State of the Union is finished, that would be my guess. Uh, by the way, con concerning the polling and the expectations of the State of the Union, uh, four in ten Americans are now saying they believe they're worse off financially since Biden became president, according to an ABC News Washington Post poll. And yet, according to a National Opinion Research Center poll, which is kind of a gold standard with polling, most people think their own financial status is fine. And part of what this involves, it seems to me, is very clearly a problem that President Biden has inspiring confidence. 62% um, of Americans, this again according to ABC News, Washington Post, 
62% of Americans say they would be dissatisfied or angry if Biden were re-elected. 62%, that's almost two-thirds. 36% said they would be enthusiastic or satisfied, but not enthusiastic. If Biden won again in 2024, we will be right back on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show. Uh, it's not just uh, Joe Biden who is the center of attention right now. Uh, it's it's uh, also uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who is the newly elected governor of Arkansas. Uh, she has the difficult job of preparing a speech without knowing entirely what uh, the president is going to say that she's going to be responding to. Who knows? He might have some surprises. Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa, who, by the way, is getting some serious talk as a presidential or vice presidential possibility. She's very popular, very capable, a wonderful communicator. She did a great job last year uh, responding to Joe Biden. But uh, what's what's interesting about the sort of layout of major characters in in Washington is that the vice president of the United States is going to be almost entirely upstaged. I mean, the only real interest in the vice president would be if Biden doesn't run for re-election. It is looking increasingly clear that he will be a candidate for re-election. He seems determined to do it, and the polling shows that if he ends up running against Trump, it would be another close race, maybe closer than the last time which, of course, would leave all sorts of opportunities for screams about stolen elections and so forth. But what, uh, what about Vice President Harris? Uh, we're not going to hear from her at all. She doesn't get to introduce the president. She gets to sit behind him, and, and this time she will have a less congenial companion, companion sitting on the big desk behind the president as he speaks. Yeah, she will be uh, sitting with Kevin McCarthy. And uh, Kevin McCarthy, the new Speaker of the House, will be joined by the Vice President. Why is that, those two? It's not just that they're the two people who are next in line to be President, but the Vice President is the President of the Senate, and the Speaker of the House, of course, is in effect the President of the House of Representatives. Uh, this is part of the reason that... Um, you're not going to hear from Vice President Harris tonight. <laughs> I know. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, she spoke uh, today at, at the India Indian Treaty Room, which uh, is in the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, uh, right adjoining the White House. And uh, these remarks were made at the Central America Forward launch event. And the president's preparing the State of the Union speech for the whole world. She's speaking to the Central America Forward launch event. But she she used the opportunity to demonstrate the extraordinary eloquence for which she has become notorious. Listen. 
Our meeting today includes not only the work that we intend to do going forward, but working together to talk about how we can measure the success we have had thus far and continue to improve on the work we've done. For many who are at the original table, you will know that it has been built into our approach that we will devise metrics and be very clear, and I thank the university and, and, and Michelle for the work that has been happening to help us articulate the metrics by which we will then measure our success in real time, not waiting for years down the line, but in real time measure our success so that we can regroup, analyze where we are, and as necessary improve our approach. Uh. Again, it, it would be it would be a challenging job to be vice president, especially uh, she had been attorney general of California. She had been a U.S. senator. And uh, basically, you're always sloppy seconds when you're VP. There are very, very few vice presidents in American history who really stood out with uh, their eloquence and their public attention. One of them was Henry Wallace who it turns out stood out because he was uh, uh, actually, uh, he w was not a communist, but he was very involved with with communists and sympathetic to the Soviet Union and, and undermining, trying to undermine President Truman, uh, who, um, who had taken over uh, from Wallace as vice president and then became president in 1945 when FDR died. Anyway, uh, he he was famous for great speeches and great eloquence, but it didn't uh, work out very well for him when he ran an independent candidate for president. He got only 2% of the vote. Speaking of getting only 2% of the vote, uh, one of my least favorite members of Congress is Rosa DeLauro, who is the... A Democratic representative of the ultra-democratic city, New Haven, Connecticut, and the New Haven area in Connecticut, which is where I went to school. And uh, she wanted to basically add her own education about the founding fathers who, you may not know it, but they supported a big government socialist campaigns and issues. Listen, this is clip 15A. The fact of being in that room and being in that room with individuals who 30 years ago, 30 years ago, understood that what families needed, what was going on in the lives of American families, and yes, more for women at that time than men, but understanding that men could take advantage of this as well, but understanding that the federal government had the ability, the strength, the power to be transformative in the lives of families, change their lives for the better, make sure that they could be, Gail, where they were needed, where they were needed. She's celebrating the 30th anniversary of the Family and Medical Leave Act under President uh, Clinton. And listen to the invocation of the Founding Fathers. Making something happen that has transformed people's lives. That is what government is about. That's what our Founding Fathers knew. Um, there were mothers too, probably. But that's what they 
believe that we should press the edge of that envelope to make the institution do what it is supposed to do to give opportunity for people and their lives. Uh, that's uh, Congresswoman Rosa DeLauro. Uh, her, her husband, Stanley Greenberg, uh, was the chief pollster for Bill Clinton. But you could see she was very excited about the Family and Medical Leave Act. Any, anybody actually believe that Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and Alexander Hamilton and George Washington, uh, the founding fathers, James Madison, were just waiting for a Family and Medical Leave Act, which would require that private businesses uh, grant people. And and by the way, do I think it's a, a terrible idea? Do I think it's unconstitutional? No, it's not unconstitutional. If if people vote for that kind of regulation, but the notion that our founding fathers, who were extremely suspicious, particularly of federal power. Uh, that that they would uh, welcome the idea that this would be this kind of regulation done on a political basis by the members of Congress of private businesses all across the country, that, I think, is somewhat uh, dubious. Uh, coming up, uh, pot. Now, pot has been a a, a favorite issue for Democrats. In fact... There are a number of Democratic consultants and political strategists who believe that uh, it could be a very big issue in 2024 if Biden goes all out for a national legalization of pot, except all of a sudden uh, it turns out that Congress is recognizing that pot is making people sick and very sick. And here words you haven't heard for a long time, the... uh, a number of migrant border crossings has dropped to its lowest level in two years. In other words, dropped to the lowest level since before Biden took over the presidency. What is causing uh, that that improvement in border security? Uh, we will get to that. And we will also talk about the State of the Union Address. The latest from the great pretender, George Santos. (laughs) And he is a never-ending source of news and amuse. Uh, Yes, we will talk about him and the fight in Ukraine and its future. The GOP's George Santos test. That was uh, recent pieces about the gentleman from New York and Brazil in this greatest nation on God's green earth. 